morning, everybody. Don't you just love to worship the Lord? It is. It is so good, especially that last song, you know. How many of us are in a battle? I know I'm in a battle. Problem is, is we're trying to fight it, but he's already won. You know, if you read the end of the book, we win. So that's a good thing. Amen. Amen. So we're going to take a detour this morning off of the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1 today now. I went and looked in the minor prophets for Nehemiah, but Tiffany so humbly told me, Bob, it's not there. And I went, oh, okay. So where it is, if you go to Psalms, which is in the middle of your Bible, and go back three books, so be going to the left, it'll be Job, and then back up to Esther, and then back up to Nehemiah, and we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1. So that's where we are this morning, and let me get there, and we will. Go ahead and read together. Here we go. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men of Judah and asked them, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive. Guess what? I just slipped down. I hate this way. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, 
I was cupbearer to the king. So let's pray together. Father, as Mark opens up for us, Nehemiah chapter 1, I pray, Father, that you would teach us about who Nehemiah was and, and the man who had a calling and a resolve to rebuild the walls, Lord. And in our own lives, God, those walls that have broken down in our own lives, God, would you give us the resolve to see you rebuild the walls, Lord, and that we would once again walk in your presence in faithfulness to you. And so, Lord, as Mark brings this word this morning, I pray that you would anoint him for teaching. And Father, as those that are in charge of teaching our little ones, Lord, I pray you would give them uh, wisdom how to minister to these little children, their hearts that are so open, Lord. And I just pray that as they learn each Sunday from these teachers, Lord, I just pray that you would pour into them faith. And we just thank you, God, for your goodness. And be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, you are dismissed. Good morning. So I feel like I owe you an explanation that we're not continuing. And Matthew, you know that typically when Jackie's gone, I continue uh, right where he left off. And, but this time, I, um, I opened up the book of Matthew and I went to uh, chapter, four, or chapter verse 14 where he left off in Matthew 24. And I went down to the bottom of that section, and the first thing I saw was the abomination of desolation. And I went. <laughs> There's so many places to go in that particular teaching, and I just truthfully don't want to step on where Jackie is at and, and where he's leading us in that section. So instead, this morning, I would like to discuss two topics that have been on my heart and on my mind for a long time, leadership and prayer. Uh, now, you should know that I've been challenged to share my heart from this text. And I confess, I'm not exactly certain how to accomplish that. But since I was challenged, I'm going to try. And maybe, just maybe, I'll tell you this is from my heart when I get to that part. So many people today would like to be leaders, but most of them never become leaders because they have a basic misunderstanding of leadership. They think that leaders are born as leaders. If you asked me to describe myself today in a few words, I doubt leader would be one of them. In fact, much of my life, was lived primarily as a follower of the latest fad, my personal wishes and desires, a go-with-the-flow kind of guy. But still, time and time again, I found myself thrust into a place of leadership. 
And through that process, I've had to learn what it means to be a leader. I've learned many lessons during that time, and some of them were very painful. For example, one of the first lessons, I was working in a manufacturing plant, and uh, the supervisor of the department I worked in suddenly quit. He just came in one day and said, I quit, I got another job. I was the most senior person in that area by like three weeks. <laughs> and the owner of the company decided that I should take over as supervisor. My first day as supervisor, I showed up to work with a baseball hat that said, I'm the boss. <laughs> you can imagine how well that went over. I have no idea what happened to that hat, but I'm pretty sure by the end of the day I was ready to burn it. There's been a lot of great leaders in the world today, and, and certainly we can point to Vince Lombardi as one of them. He was the coach of the Green Bay Packers, and he led them to numerous national championships during his time with the team. He believed that leaders are made, and he said this about the subject. He said, leaders are made, not born, and they're made just like anything else that has ever been made in this country by hard effort. And that's the price we have to pay to achieve that goal or any goal. He goes on a little bit further in this quote, and he says this, it is becoming increasingly difficult to be tolerant of a society which has sympathy only for the misfits, only for the maladjusted, only for the criminal or the loser. Have sympathy for them, yes. Help them. But I think it's also time for us to stand up for and to cheer for the doer, the one who recognizes a problem and does something about it, the one who looks for something extra to do for his country. And I would add to that, the one who looks for something extra to do for his family, for his church, for his community. And I must confess, if this quote doesn't fit our culture today, then I don't know what does. Because leadership today is especially risky. Standing up for what you believe is like painting a target on your back and waiting for the real bullets to strike. And let me tell you, when you stand up for what you believe, people shoot real bullets at you. In our nation today, people are desperate for true leaders. Desperate. Everywhere, we need true godly men to lead us in politics, in business, in families, and in church. We are desperate because so many we've looked to for leadership have failed us time and time again. Those people that we see as leaders end up falling and failing us. Sometimes that failure is miserable. And in that failure, they have harmed our families, our churches, our communities. They have broken our trust. And some of those leaders today continue to harm our nation. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that some people aren't born with leadership tendencies. Peter was certainly a guy who had quality, qualities of leadership. 
But even born leaders need to learn how to use those skills. Peter himself went through some pretty painful lessons before becoming the leader Christ had called him to be. My point this morning is that leadership can be learned. And if it can be learned, then it also can be taught. Think about that as I go through the rest of this message. If leadership can be learned, then it also can be taught. And I'm going to say, we must teach it. Scripture teaches us about the importance of leaders. Proverbs 11:14 says, where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, advised him like this in Exodus 18, 21 through 30, 23. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God and who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such a man over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. You see here, Jethro is teaching Moses what it means to choose leaders godly men, men who are trustworthy, men who don't take bribes. When David begins to gather his armies uh, at Ziklag in 1 Chronicles 12, we read of the mighty men who came to join him. Some are described as swift as gazelles on the mountainside. Others are skilled with shield and spear and had faces like lions. Of some, it was said, the least of them was a match for a hundred men and the greatest a match for a thousand. Obviously, this is not an army to be taken lightly. And then in the midst of this description of these battle-hardened, terrifying warriors, almost as an afterthought, we read this in 1 Chronicles 12:32, Of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do, 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. And why is this verse important? Well, I think it's important, and I think it was put there because we see this huge gathering of these extremely dangerous men, battle-hardened, armed to the teeth, prepared to fight. But what good are those men without leaders? What good are those men who don't understand the times, who don't recognize what the country ought to do? We need those kind of leaders today in our country, in our families, in our churches, in our communities. All of these verses are speaking about leadership. Our country, our homes, our churches today are in desperate need of godly leaders. And perhaps you're thinking, well, where do we find these men? How do we teach them to become leaders? 
Now, I know you've heard this before, but get ready because we're going to keep talking and talking and talking about this. Where do we teach or where do we find these men? How do we teach them to become leaders? First, it begins with discipleship. Older men teaching younger men. Seasoned believers teaching new believers. Leadership requires being instructed in the basics of Christian life. That's the only way we're going to raise up godly men to be leaders. Leaders in the church. Godly men to be leaders of their family. Godly men to be leaders in our communities and in our nation. It it involves Bible study, daily devotions, scripture memorization, application of scripture in our lives, prayer. And why do I say these are so important? Because these are Jesus' final instructions to his disciples in Matthew 28, 19 to 20, and to anyone who calls himself a Christian. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. All of those things I mentioned are in the things that Jesus commanded us to do. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These practices, this discipline, because that's what discipleship is, is the foundation upon which true godly leaders are built. And this is key. Before you can become a discipler, you must have been discipled. In fact, moving forward in this church, before you can become a leader, you must have been discipled. Nehemiah is a great place to start with leadership instruction. Let me give you a little background on Nehemiah if you're not familiar. He was a pretty famous guy. Uh, He was a cupbearer, and he never appears outside of Scripture, or he never appears in Scripture outside of this book. He was famous because he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later in the message. Um, Much of this book is drawn from Nehemiah's personal diaries, but Jewish and, and Christian scholars typically agree that the author of the book is Ezra. True to God's promise, the Assyrians and Babylonians were used to deliver God's punishment on the disobedient Judah and Israel. In 722 BC, the Assyrians deported the 10 northern tribes, which were comprised Israel, and scattered them all over the known world. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 17. Several centuries later, God uses the Babylonians to sack, destroy, and nearly depopulate Jerusalem because Judah had persisted in her unfaithfulness to God. You can read about that in 2 Kings 25. During the 70-year captivity in Babylon, world power changed from the Babylonians to the Persians. The book of Ezra begins with the decree of Cyrus, a Persian king, to return God's people to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel and Joshua led the first return and rebuilt the temple. That's in Ezra 1 through 6. Ezra leads the second return in 458 BC. That's Ezra 7 through 10. 
And Nehemiah tells us about the third return to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. It's interesting to note that in this time in history, although Persia was the dominant world power, her rule was accomplished by a fairly loose hand. Even so, Persia was mindful of disruptions or any signs of rebellion from its captured territories, and rebuilding the walls of a conquered city would certainly pose a significant threat to Persia's central rule. Only someone very close to the king himself could be trusted with such a potentially threatening task. At the critical time, God raised up Nehemiah to exercise that role, the king's trusted cupbearer and confidant. Prayer is one of the overriding themes of this book and is the secret, I believe, to Nehemiah's success. The prayer in chapter one is the first of 12 different prayers recorded in Nehemiah. The book begins with prayer in Persia and closes with prayer in Jerusalem. Prayer gives Nehemiah perspective, it widens his horizons, sharpens his vision, and it calms his anxieties. Prayer will do that for us too. And in the book of Nehemiah, prayer is always accompanied with action. And so this morning we're going to look at the first 12 verses, or 11 verses, we're going to look at chapter 1. And in these verses, we will see that Nehemiah went through a process of prayer and action that has great application and relevance to us today. I encourage you to read the rest of this book because this theme is repeated over and over throughout Nehemiah. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, 1 through 4. And we read, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there is in the province who had survived the exile, excuse me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So here's where I have a hard time uh, expressing my heart. As a teacher, I'm a follow through the book, give you the highlights kind of a guy. So that's what I'm going to do right now. <laughs> the first point I have for you today is that what we learn from this passage from Nehemiah is that awareness and concern about the problem are critically important. We know from verse 11 that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. And as the cupbearer, he had a pretty risky job. His duty was to make sure the king's cup never ran dry, and he also had to taste the wine before serving it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. On the plus side, he also had intimate access to loyalty, he had political standing in the king's household, and he had a place to live in the palace. Except for the danger of poison, it was probably a fairly easy job 
that provided everything he needed. And yet, when one of his brothers returned from a road trip to Jerusalem, verse 2 says that Nehemiah questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Nehemiah is greatly concerned about what was happening in Jerusalem. He could have insulated himself if he chose to, but he didn't. He sought, he sought them out. He sought out the people that came on this trip, and he wanted to hear their firsthand report. He wanted to know what was happening in Jerusalem. Now, this is a, such an important starting point. It's so easy for us to sit back and stay uninvolved and unaware. Some of us don't even want to think about the stuff that's going in our own lives, much less take the time to investigate what's happening in the lives of others. Even though Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem, he had heard stories about it, and he knew that his ancestors had been led away in chains when Babylon destroyed it. He was doing what Jeremiah 5150 instructed the exiles to do. You who have escaped from the sword, go, do not stand still. Remember the Lord from far away and let Jerusalem come into your mind. Nehemiah was devastated over the complacency of the people in Jerusalem. Remember verse 4? He, he says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying for the God of heaven. The people in Jerusalem were living in ruins, and they accepted it. They were willing to walk around the devastation instead of being concerned enough to do something about their situation. So here's the first part of my message that comes from my heart. Friends, nothing, nothing is ever going to change in your life, in your families, in your community, in the life of this church, or for that matter, the life of this nation, until we become concerned about the problem. We must become concerned about the problem. I'm constantly amazed at the power of status quo. For most of my ministry, I've dealt with people who continue to live in terrible circumstances but do nothing about it. Homelessness, addiction, unemployment, anger, shame, resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness, broken relationships. They have no joy. They have no hope in their lives. They're stuck in misery and gloom and oftentimes sin. And don't get me wrong, I've been there myself. But the power of status quo, the power of saying this is the way it is and I can't change it is incredible. Other people look around the world and they see the devastation and the injustice in the lives of their neighbors and they wring their hands and they say, oh, those poor people, somebody needs to do something about this. And then they walk away and at best, 
They say another empty prayer. At worst, they do nothing at all. Some of us today have become complacent about the way our life is going. Like the Jews in, Israel, or in Jerusalem, we live with the wreckage and the rubble of life, and it doesn't even bother us anymore. We look around at our community and country and we say, man, things are crazy. It's getting worse by the minute. But what can I do about it? Let me ask you this morning, are you ready to allow God to begin to do some rebuilding? Because rebuilding is only going to come from God and it's going to be accomplished by his people. If so, if you are ready to begin the process of rebuilding, you need to first become concerned about the problem by listening to the facts, even if you don't want to hear them. Here's a fact. Our world's need for hope and change has never been greater. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's only going to get worse especially if the church continues to sit and not do the work that God has called us to do. Nobody else in the world is going to save the world. Nobody else in the world is going to fix the problems. They are going to contribute to the problems. We have the truth. We have the answer. And we need to share it. Somebody needs to do something. Better yet, all of us need to do something. When Nehemiah heard this report, he sat and he began to weep. He'd never been to Jerusalem. He didn't know any of those people. He had a pretty comfortable life, except for he had to make sure the king's wine wasn't poisoned. He also fasted. In the Old Testament, fasting was only required once a year. But we see Nehemiah refraining from food for several days. These are all signs of humility, and they show his deep concern for the problem. And it's the beginning of his action. His response is heartfelt, and it's intentional. And friends, we could learn from Nehemiah today. Let me ask you another question. Are you aware of what's going on in the lives of the people around you? Take a look around this auditorium this morning. Go ahead, look around. There's a lot of you here today. I promise you, there is hurt in this room that you don't know about. Are you aware of what's going on in your family? Are you aware of what's going on in your workplace? Or are you so caught up in your own problems, in your own comforts, that you live an insulated life? Who in your circle, or maybe who in this room, can you encourage today? Or maybe today your own life is in need of some rebuilding. Are your defenses, is, is the wall around your city so broken down that you're allowing some practices and sins 
to control your life? Before you can help a neighbor or ask a brother for help, you must first become aware and concerned about the problem. Now, I'm not pointing out you guys. I do this too. It's easy for me. It's easy for me to sit back and say, well, I'm, I'm doing okay today. I'm going to watch TV. Yeah, and I'm going to relax. I'm going to put my feet up and chill for a while. And all the while, people around me are struggling. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't take times out to rest because that's biblical as well. But we need to know what's happening in our own lives and the lives of the people that we care about. The second thing that we learn from Nehemiah is that he had great conviction about God's character. When was the last time you thought with conviction about the amazing character of God? Mine was when I started preparing this message. In Nehemiah, starting in verse 5, we read this. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of your people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, your outcasts are in the uttermost, though your outcasts are in the uttermost part, parts of heaven, from there will I gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Interesting little phrase there at the end of that prayer. I think that that's Nehemiah showing humility before God. He prays this prayer and then he says, and I'm nothing, I'm just the cupbearer to the king. And as I studied this message and reviewed the book, I'd almost swear that Nehemiah knew the ACTS system of prayer. ACTS is an acronym for a method of praying, and if you're not sure what that is, write this down. The A stands for adoration. We acknowledge God's power and his care for our lives. The C stands for confession. We confess our sinfulness and ask for forgiveness. The T stands for thanksgiving. Thank God for his past and present works in your life. The S stands for supplication. We pray for the things we need and for those needs we know about in the lives of others. We will see this repeated 
in Nehemiah's prayers as you go through the book. After Nehemiah becomes concerns, concerned, he next expresses his conviction of God's character. In verse 5 he said, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah calls God Lord. He recognized the Lord as his master. In verse 6, he refers to himself as God's servant. He then refers to his Lord as the God of heaven. He acknowledged that his God was beyond the earthly realm and that all other gods were beneath him. He next refers to him as great and awesome. God deserves to be honored, revered, and feared by all because of who he is. Finally, Nehemiah describes God as the one who keeps his covenant of love. God is truthful, faithful, and can be trusted. All of this is adoration. And Nehemiah is praying the A from the acronym ACTS. Nehemiah's boss, the king, was the greatest and most powerful man on earth at that time. But Nehemiah knew that compared to God, Artaxerxes was nothing. Because of his conviction about God's character, Nehemiah knew that God was not only able, but he was willing to respond to his prayer. But he also knew that he did not deserve to have God treat him favorably. That's why the next phase of his prayer is a confession of sin. Guys, I need you to hear this this morning. We must confess our sin. All of us, like Job, Nehemiah's encounter with the awesome God brings him to the place of repentance and confession. We read in Job 42, 5 through 6, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job knew who he was in comparison to God. Job knew that he could not stand in the presence of a holy God, a God who is complete love, complete holiness, complete righteousness. We don't have the chance to stand before that God without Jesus. And so we also learn from Nehemiah the importance of the confession of sin. After becoming concerned about the problem and expressing his conviction about God's character, Nehemiah is now moved to admit his sins and the sins of his people. In verses six through seven, he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. And then he says this, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. It's one thing to be concerned 
and to even have a firm conviction of who God is. It's another thing to actually confess. Many people never get this far. We might feel bad about our sins or be concerned about how things are going. Our theology may even be correct. We know things are bad and that God is good, but for some reason we hesitate when we come to the step of confession. And I know, I pray with some of you, and rarely do I hear a confession in those prayers. Confession is crucially important in the life of a believer. Unconfessed sin is flat out dangerous. And here are a few passages to tell you why. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for a lot of my life, I've deceived myself. And for a lot of my life, the truth was not in me. I don't want to be there ever again. And what does John say here? If we say we have no sin, if we do not confess our sin, then we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. What does it mean to cherish iniquity in your heart? It means to covet your sin and to not confess it. And so this passage is telling us if we are hanging on to unconfessed sin in our hearts, God won't hear us. James 5.16 Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Let me just stop right there. Confess your sins to one another. Do you know how many times people have said to me, I confess to God, I don't have to confess to anyone else. And that's true. God is the one who forgives our sins. But James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Healed of your sin. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it's working. When we confess our sins to one another, we begin to live in a position of transparency where we can pray for one another earnestly and we can receive God's healing in our life. Confession of sin is not optional in the life of a believer. Nehemiah boldly asked God to hear his prayer, which in this version literally means to hear intelligently with great attention. That's what Nehemiah is asking of God. And there are three key uh, ingredients in this confession of sin that I think are worth noting. The first of those is intensity. Overwhelmed by concern about sin and in awe of God's character, Nehemiah gave himself to prolonged petition and intercession. He prayed day and night, spending significant time in God's presence. This is very similar to Psalm 88.1 where we read, 
O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Nehemiah was intense in his confession of sin. He wasn't just saying, God, I'm sorry. I'll try not to do this again. He was saying, God, I recognize that what I have done is an affront to you. And he recognizes the position that that puts him in. And so he confesses with intensity to God. The second thing we see in his confession is that it's honest. He makes no attempt to excuse the Israelites for their sin and own his part in their guilt. He didn't say, God, forgive me for being mean, but I wouldn't have been mean if the other person wasn't a jerk. You see, he is honest about his sin. He owns it. He doesn't make an excuse for it. He surveys the grim record of Israel's past and present failure, and he knows that he is not exempt from the blame. Notice that he also prays, I confess the sins of we Israelites, including myself. We have acted very wickedly. We have not obeyed. This is remarkable. It really is. I rarely hear this kind of prayer. It would have been easy for Nehemiah to look back and blame his ancestors and say, hey, I wasn't there during that time. I got stuck over here. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he looks within himself and he accepts his own blame in the problem. It's so easy for us to blame others, isn't it? so easy here's another thing that's from my heart that I really want you to get today and that is simply this we need to remember that first and foremost all sin is a sin against a holy God when you speak unkindly to your wife when you have a short word with your boss Yes, you owe them an apology. But first and foremost, that sin is a sin against the holy God. And you need to confess that sin and repent from it. We need to learn from Nehemiah and confess honestly, Lord, I'm wrong. And we need to tell him, I not only want to be part of the answer, I confess to you that I'm a big part of the problem. This third point that we catch in uh, Nehemiah's confession is that there is urgency about it. So let me encourage you today that when you realize you have done something that was sinful, you stop right there and confess it. And you go immediately to the person and you tell them, I'm sorry. A confession of sin that comes weeks or months after the act really doesn't seem that honest to me. I'll accept it and I'll forgive it. But for me, if someone sins against me, I would much rather they came to me immediately. And and I do my very best to keep short accounts in my life. 
When I sin against someone, as soon as I realize it, I try to go to them and ask for their forgiveness, and I confess to God and ask for his. Nehemiah recognized that sin is not merely a stubborn refusal to obey certain rules, but is also a defiant act of aggression and personal rebellion against a holy God. He knows that they have acted very wickedly, and he doesn't try to sugarcoat his sin. He owned it, and he called it what it was. And friends, we need to do the same. I need to do the same. Trying to hide our sins from God is impossible. So why do we try to do it? Does everyone in here know that God already knows your sins? Numbers 32, 23 reminds us that you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Now, there's a sobering passage of scripture if I've ever read one. You may be sure that your sin will find you out. We need to recognize that all sin, those things we have blatantly done or carelessly committed, or those things that we have left undone, must be identified and then confessed. Are you trying to hide anything today? It's better to confess it now than to wait until your sin exposes you. Trust me in this, because I have experienced that personally. When your sin catches up with you, it's life-saving, but it's not fun. It's not fun. And let me just tell you this. At the end of every service, we have people up here waiting for people to come forward and pray. And, and let me encourage you, if you're sick or you have a family member who's struggling, come up and let us pray with you about that. But let me encourage you also that if there is an issue of sin in your life, that you come up and ask us to pray for you and ask God for forgiveness. There's nothing magical about us being elders and pastors, but scripture says, confess your sins one to another. Do you even know when you sin? There have been times in my lives when I was so oblivious that I just went right along sinning and didn't take any notice of it at all. Are you so complacent in your walk that you can't or you refuse to recognize sin? Let me give you a clue to finding the answers to these questions. It's one word, and it's discipleship. And I'll explain more about that when I close. This part of Nehemiah's prayer is the C in Acts, confession. The next thing we learn from Nehemiah is that he has confidence in God's promises, and he prays with confidence in God's promises. He, he spends time in broken confession, but he doesn't wallow in prolonged introspective examination of his failures and those of his brothers and sisters. He says, God, this is what we did. It was wrong. Forgive us. He owns what he did was wrong, and then he quickly expresses his confidence in the promises of God in verses 8 through 10. 
He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my nation dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. What is the promise that Nehemiah is getting at in this passage? Well, it's twofold. First, God promised that if Israel disobeyed, they would be sent to a foreign land. That had already been fulfilled, and Nehemiah at this point is living that promise. He's in exile. The second part of the promise was that when Israel and Judah returned to God and repented from their sins and the captivity was over, God would send them back to Jerusalem. They were still waiting for that to be fulfilled. And Nehemiah prays, Lord, the first part is true. We've disobeyed and we're in captivity. But Lord, you've made a promise to bring us back home and protect us there. And that's not happened yet. I'm trusting your promise that you will make it happen. This is Nehemiah being grateful to God for his promises, for the ones that have happened and the ones still to come. Nehemiah here is using the T in Acts, thanksgiving. Someone has calculated, and I have no idea if this is true, that there are over 7,000 promises in the Bible. But here's the important point about that. The better we know the word of God, the better we'll be able to pray with confidence in God's promises. 1 John 5, 14 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask him anything according to his will, he hears us. Are you as confident in God's promises today as Nehemiah was? If God said it in his word, then you can believe it and you can trust it. Nehemiah knew God would keep his covenant of love with his people. <clears throat> he also knew that even though God did not need his help, he was ready to get involved. And that brings me to the last thing that we're going to hear and learn from Nehemiah, and that's simply get involved. Now, you hear this message from the pulpit a lot, but that doesn't make it unnecessary. We need to get involved. Do you see the progression in Nehemiah's prayer? His concern about the problem leads him to brokenness. While he's weeping and fasting, he expresses conviction about God's character. As he focuses on the greatness and holiness of God, he's quickly reminded of his own wickedness and therefore he cries out in confession. After owning his role in the nation's uh, problems, he prays boldly and with confidence in God's promises. He expresses gratitude, and this leads him to get involved. We see this in verse 11, where Nehemiah expresses S, supplication. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. I was the cupbearer to the king. 
That's Nehemiah's supplication. He's asking God to help. The man that Nehemiah is talking about here is King Artaxerxes. As cupbearer, Nehemiah is in a pretty unique position with the king. Because he tests his wine for poison, the king over time begins to trust him. And he has a lot of time in the king's presence. So it's possible, although it was dangerous, it was possible for him to make requests of the king. Requests that couldn't be made by other people. Because of this, it was not unusual for his relationship with the king to be a close one. God sovereignly uses this relationship between a Gentile and a Jew to deliver his people just as he did with Joseph, Daniel, and Esther. But Nehemiah takes the required action. Nehemiah does what God calls him to do. A conquered Jew asked the king of the known world if he could have permission to essentially quit his job and return home and rebuild the defenses of his conquered city. Imagine that. That's, that's startling. It's outrageous. It's been said that prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, but getting God's will done on earth. When God accomplishes his will on earth, he regularly uses people who are available to him. While Nehemiah was praying, his burden for Jerusalem became greater and his vision of what needed to be done became clearer. He doesn't pray for God to send someone else. He simply said, here I am, send me. He knew that he would have to approach the king and with quite a bit of risk, request a three-year leave of absence, and so he asked God for success. He wanted God to go before him on his behalf when he goes in front of the king to make this request. He was claiming yet another promise from the book of Proverbs 21.1 that says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course where he pleases. Someone else has said that the key word in this book is the word so, which occurs 32 times in the book of Nehemiah. Again and again, Nehemiah assesses the situation, is moved to concern, and so is compelled to action. The true measure of our concern is whether or not we are willing to get involved. Friends, we do this all the time. We sit back and we say, oh, Lord, what are we going to do? Things are falling apart. It's a mess. But I don't want to go. Martin Luther is quoted as saying, pray as if everything depends on God, and then work as if everything depends on you. I think that's a pretty good description of what Nehemiah does. So I think that Nehemiah's visit with Hanani was a wake-up call for him. He was living a pretty good life far away from a place he'd never even been. 
There was an awful lot of work that needed to be done, but it wasn't his responsibility. His responsibility was to the king. And then he heard God's wake-up call. Sometimes we all need a wake-up call, don't we? Let me share this story of one that I once received. Before the promotion in that factory where I got my first shot at being a leader, I didn't really start out that well. Like many young men, I spent my off hours partying with friends. And this often meant that I was out till the wee hours on Saturday and Sunday. It was not unusual for me to be too tired after a weekend of fun to get up and report to work on time, if at all. One Tuesday morning after calling in sick on Monday, I walked in late and I walked up to the time clock. We had about 40 employees at that time and each one of us had a specific slot for our time card. And as I reached up for mine, I noticed that it wasn't there. And so I searched every slot. I pulled every time card up to make sure it didn't get stuck to another one. This was the, back in the old days when you had big long cards that you stuck in and the clock went and punched your time. It was really a punch clock. So I couldn't find my time card, so I went and looked for my supervisor, and a bit annoyed, I said to, say, said to him, hey, where's my time card? And he said to me, Mel has it on his desk, and he's waiting for you. Mel was the owner of the company. So I went to Mel's office, and I knocked, and he told me to come in and close the door behind me. He was seated at his large mahogany desk, but this morning something was different. The normal papers and pens and work stuff and blotter were completely gone and his desk was empty except for one thing, my time card. To say that Mel was kind to me that morning would be true, but the words didn't feel that way at the time. He told me very firmly and with an edge in his voice, that I missed more time in a month than the average hourly employee in the nation. And he had all the statistics printed up for me to see. <laughs> he told me nine times out of 10, and he had these records as well, my absences were on Monday, and he knew what that meant. He explained what it cost him as a businessman, lost production, overtime for other people to catch up on the work that I should have done, and frustration and high blood pressure for him. He asked me why he shouldn't tear up my time card and escort me to the door. To this day, I can feel the reaction that I had. My eyes were downcast, my ears were burning, I'm sure my face and neck were very red, and it took everything I had not to break into tears. I needed this job badly, and that fact was sinking in for the very first time since I had started. I had been comfortable with partying and being late and frequently absent. I was stuck in the status quo, and I didn't even realize it. I stammered and stuttered that I really needed this job and I promised him that I would never be late again and would only call in sick if I were absolutely dying. 
Well, Mel sat in his chair across that desk, and as I look back on it, it seems like that desk was the size of an ocean. And he stared at me for what seemed to be five minutes without saying a word. His eyes were literally drilling into my skull because I had my head down. Finally, he spoke, and he said, Mark, he slid my time card across the table. I don't believe you can keep that promise. Prove me wrong. I worked for that company for seven more years. And in that time, I was never late, and I never called in sick. Never in seven years. When I finally left there, I was plant manager. That wake-up call served me well. I went home that day embarrassed and angry and frightened. And although I didn't realize it at the time, I was also changed. That's the whole point of a wake-up call. It's for you to make changes in your life. Maybe today God is stirring you to wake up. Maybe he's saying, I created you. Go do something for me. And if that's true, what are you going to do? Today we've just scratched the surface of Nehemiah, but we've learned a lot and we've talked about a lot. Because of his trust in God and his faithfulness in prayer, Nehemiah convinced a pagan king to let him go to a place he had never been and rebuild its protective wall. When he got there, he found a Jerusalem filled with hopeless, demoralized people surrounded by vicious enemies. You can learn about this if you read the book. I'm not making this up. They had little food and hardly any building materials. The original wall was scattered and tumbled, and many of the blocks were broken and shattered. But Nehemiah surveyed the situation. He made a plan. He encouraged the people. He assigned the jobs, and he rebuilt the two-and-a-half-mile, 35-foot-high, 8-foot-thick wall in 52 days. I doubt we could do that today with all of our modern equipment. That's what a godly leader can do. And so for me, as I come to the close of this message, the question I have to ask myself is, how do we become leaders like Nehemiah? And I think we need to start by asking ourselves some difficult questions. Are we concerned about our own problems? the problems that just keep circling around us and we don't direct or we don't address, we don't confess? And what about the problems of, uh, of others around us? Are we concerned about them, about their health and well-being? Do we have a deep conviction about God's holy character? Are we ready to confess our sins with intent with clarity, being specific, to admit our part in the problem without blaming others? Do we have confidence in God's promises? Are we ready to get involved, really, truly ready to get involved in God's kingdom work? If you answered yes to those questions, great. Truly, I'm happy. 
But the next question after that is where do we start? How do we get there? Well, I think it's pretty obvious we must start with the foundation. Without the firm foundation of Christ, none of our works are going to stand. And I am certain, I am absolutely positive that that foundation starts with discipleship training. Here's my heart again this morning. Men, the leadership in this church is coming after you. Get ready. We are serious about this. Because scripture teaches us that godly marriages, godly families, godly churches and communities depend on godly men. Ladies, there's a place for you in this project as well. And we'll be talking about that as we go forward. But our first and foremost focus is going to be on you men. Get ready. We tried this once before, and to be honest, it didn't work out the way we hoped. The results were not what we had expected, and so we've taken that original program and we've looked at it, we've critiqued it and discussed it and prayed about it, and we've made changes. We will be talking about those changes and beginning to take signups for discipleship groups in the next few weeks. Here's what I know discipleship will do for you. It will build character. It will bring you into a closer walk with Jesus and his people. It will develop in you loyalty to others and to the church. It will deepen your knowledge and understanding of God and his word. It will deepen your prayer life and help you learn about and to practice confession and repentance. It will strengthen our marriages, our families, our community, our church, and ultimately our nation. It will build strong relationships between men. And it will be the foundation to develop the future leaders that we all need. Is this a long-term project? You better believe it. We're in this for the long haul. Will it be easy? Not likely. But here's the thing. If you do it, if you really truly commit to it, it will change your life. So today, I want to issue a challenge to the men. Today, begin to pray about joining a group. Pray earnestly. Pray intentionally. Pray specifically. Confess your sin and pray and ask for God to tell you whether he wants you to join a group. I guarantee you he does.
And then, in a couple of weeks, when the sign-out sheets come up, come out, I want you to put your name on one of them. We are in a season of rebuilding. Our world is a mess. And all too often, the church and those who call themselves Christians are weak and ineffective. But God, the two most powerful words in scripture, but God can help us change. When we recognize who God is, when we have the courage to admit that we've messed up, when we become concerned enough about the way we've been living that we confess our sins, when we have confidence in the promises of God, when we turn to him in thanksgiving, we can know that God will do his rebuilding work. His word has promised it. Let's pray. Father God, come before you today and we confess that we are all too often complacent. We are all too often stuck in the status quo. We sit in our chairs and our offices and we think about programming and events and things that we would like to do, but we don't think about confession. We don't think about repentance. We don't think about the sin in our lives. We look around the world and we see that it's falling apart day by day, hour by hour, it's getting worse. And we do nothing. Help us, God, as we begin this season of rebuilding. Help us to teach men to be godly leaders. Help us to bring men into discipleship that will transform their lives in the face of this church. Help us, God, to be a shining light in Buell that spreads to every community around us. We want to do these things so that here in this church, we glorify you. And we ask for your forgiveness and for your strength. In Jesus' name, amen.